This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So our next speaker is Elaine Koo. She's a MedPeds nephrologist. I've been working with her closely. What she's going to talk about are the challenges of managing the young adult patient. This is not necessarily talking about pediatrics. That's not what I, I asked her to address. It's really in the, the challenges that we have in that 18 to 25-year-old, and she's going to talk to you about what that's all about. Dr. Koo. Thanks. <clears throat> I want to thank Deb for inviting me to speak today. Um, this is going to be an interactive talk. I don't have any scary infections, um, but I might have a scary population that is not your favorite in your clinic to talk about. Let's see if I can make this work. So adolescents and young adulthood. How many of you remember your adolescence and what you were like? Yeah, I thought I remembered pretty well. I went home this weekend and I asked my mom, you know, how was I as an adolescent? I wasn't too bad, right? Um... She smirked, then she rolled her eyes, then she said, honey, you're lucky to be alive and asking this question. I don't know, I had a very different perception of my adolescence, but probably for a very good reason. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, if you look at gray matter maturation, it really happens over um, a lifespan um, as you're developing. And what I really like about this figure is you can see that the blue represents gray matter. It doesn't really put an arrow as to where you get to this maximally blue part, which is when you're, you need all your le- reasoning and logical skills. And so maturation really happens at a different pace for um, adolescents and young adults. Not everyone is the same. I think really to describe the scope of the problem, this still remains one of the best papers that have looked at this issue. And so this paper really wanted to look at what are graft outcomes looking like in adolescents versus the rest of the transplant population that you might be taking care of. Um, It's a little bit of an older paper from 2010, but looked at 170,000 kidney-only transplants. These are first-time transplants that occurred between 1987 and 2010, according to the OPTN. The predictor here is age at transplantation. The outcome was graft failure, and there was a lot of graft failure in this cohort. About one-third went into graft failure, and 15% died. Just showing some basic characteristics of this cohort, the mean-aged cohort is actually 38. It's a racially and ethnically diverse population that's representative of our patients in the United States. About a third actually have private insurance. But what I'm showing you here is on the x-axis is the age at transplant, and on the y-axis is your risk of graft failure, and everyone is being compared to an 18-year-old. So you can see that the highest risk for graft failure is actually in the 14 to 16-year-old population. That's where this graft peaks. And while the living donor transplants actually do a little bit better than disease donor transplants, which is to be expected, and private insurance does a little bit better than government-based insurance, adolescence is a high-risk period for transplantation. Then what I really like about this paper is they went on to look at one, three, five, and 10-year follow-up. So again, on your x-axis, you're looking at age at transplantation, On the y-axis is graft survival, and you're again comparing everyone to an 18-year-old. At at the time of transplantation, you'll have to do a little bit of math, but at one year, the survival is again lowest in the 14- to 16-year-old period. At three years of follow-up, graft survival is lowest, again, for that 14- to 16-year-old period. 
At five years, you can see that it gets worse. So at five years of follow-up, we're talking about patients who are now between the ages of 19 and 21, if you do the math. And then at 10 years of follow-up, you can see that graphs for survival for those who were transplanted between 14 and 16 years of age is actually dismal, right? It's not what we want to see in this population. They then went on to look at some racial differences, and these are disease donor transplants, but overall you can see that the trends are the same. African-American recipients do do worse in terms of graft survival, but again, it's that 14 to 16-year-old age group when the patients are receiving their first transplantation um, that seems to have the highest risk of graft survival over time. In terms of graft half-life, so they went on to look at Based on your age of transplantation, what is the half-life of your graft survival? You can see that it's a little bit better, again, for living compared to deceased donors, but it's not very good for those people who were transplanted at a young age. This is not what we want to see for someone who is between 14 and 16 years at the time of ESRD onset, and is likely to go on to need one, two, if not three kidney transplants over their lifetime. And the problem with this age group, and it's not a problem, it's great, they survive. Right? They're not the typical 65-year-old who might get one transplant and they won't need a second one. These patients are going to go on to need um, multiple transplants during their lifetime, and so graft survival should really be a priority. Well, here's part of the problem. So again, on, this is UNOS data now that we're looking at. On the x-axis, you're looking at years post-transplant. On the y-axis, you're looking at losses to follow-up, <clears throat> and we have um, this t figure has actually divided everyone by the age at transplantation. And you can see that the greatest losses to follow-up are those who are actually transplanted between 12 and 17 years of age, compared to the blue line, which is those who are transplanted between zero to five years of age, probably because those patients have very lovely human beings known as parents. Um, who make sure that their kids come to follow up. Um, and then the second highest risk is those who are over the age of 18. So who sees these young adult patients? And that, you know, in pediatrics, we certainly see these patients. We follow them until 18 or 21 years of age. And then we end up transferring them. So you can see that based on your age at transplant, as you get older and older, the portion of patients that are not being followed by the transplant center, which is the blue, is less and less. And the proportion that are being followed by other providers, community nephrologists, for example, the green part gets larger and larger. So this is who's really taking care of these patients and who really needs to know how to take care of these patients so that we can improve our graft survival outcomes. So I think I've described the scope of the problem. I want to share with you a little bit about what, who, who these young adults with kidney transplants actually look like. And understanding who they are is really critically important to making that connection and making sure that you're able to provide um, appropriate care for your young adult patient. So the best paper that I can find is actually, unfortunately, out of the United Kingdom. Um, and I'll share with you a little bit later why I chose this paper. But this paper looks at psychosocial health and lifestyle behaviors in a young adult population who is receiving renal replacement therapy. They surveyed patients. Um, you can see that the mean age of these patients, uh, sorry, the median is 25 years, spanning from 21 to 28 years. They're from all over England. Um, about half of them are still actually being managed um, in adult transplant centers, even though they're less than 20 years of age. And about 64% of them actually have access to a transition clinic center, which I would say is higher than the proportion of patients who have access to a transition clinic in the United States. And you can see that this is a duration since renal replacement therapy start. The median duration is six years. 
This is really just to show you survey responders ever had a transplant. So the majority of patients who are responding to the survey are actually um, people who have had a transplant. And not surprisingly, a great proportion of this cohort actually had a failed transplant, 27%. So what I really like about this paper to orient you is that they actually compare the responses of the young adults who have had renal replacement therapy, either through transplant or dialysis, compared to the general population. And I'll share with you a couple of interesting things about this. First of all, the young adult population that has, had re that has had renal replacement therapy is 15 times more likely to be unable to work. Um, and this arrow has moved a little bit. If when they do work, they're mostly in sales and customer service um, occupations, and you can see that that's statistically significant. Only half of them are really working full-time, and that's much less than a general young adult population who is not receiving renal replacement therapy. And then they asked them about their health, and the health was actually rated as very good, good, very bad, versus very bad. And you can see that in the young adults receiving renal placement therapy, 15% said that their health was very bad, compared to 33% in the general population, and that's a six-fold difference that you're actually looking at. A number of the young adults um, were reporting that it were, they were very likely to have to have reduced their usual activities in the last two weeks. Not surprisingly, they have a higher prevalence of hypertension and diabetes. But the proportion that are actually married and living with a partner is slightly lower in a young adult population receiving renal replacement therapy. But look at how many are actually still living with their parents or their legal guardian. So this is really the young adult population that you're actually taking care of. They queried a little bit about smoking alcohol and drugs, and I don't know what they do in the United Kingdom, but they're doing a fairly good job, it looks like, because if you look at the rates of self-reported smoking, alcohol, and drugs, it's actually lower in the young adult population who is receiving renal replacement therapy compared to that in the general population, and yet they are still experimenting. They're trying marijuana, they are trying alcohol, they are trying smoking. So they do explore these things, but the sustained activity, at least by self-report, does not seem to be higher than that of the general young adult population. So I think part of really understanding how to take care of young adults is really understanding what their priorities are. And I really like this paper. As we moved as a research field more towards patient-centered outcomes, I think more and more of these things are important to really understand. So this is a survey that was given to children and young adults who actually have um, ESRD, compare, um, and they're comparing sort of outcomes that are actually important for the parents versus the children. So it's a very busy figure, and I'll walk you through it. But first, I'm going to show you all the gray bubbles are priorities for children and adolescents. So they really want to feel normal. They, want, they fear invasive treatments. They want to remain hopeful. And if you look at the priorities, these are from top to bottom, from most important to less important. Survival is important, but following survival, it's sports that's really important to them, and fatigue. It's not the things that you and I are necessarily concerned about in clinic. These are their priorities, um, and I think it's part of that idea that they really want to feel normal. Then if you look at what was really important to parents, these are the white bubbles, so these are parents only, it's protecting the health of their child, very reasonable, setting realistic um, expectations, minimizing physical discomfort for their child, and then strengthening the resilience for daily challenges. Then if you look at the black bubbles, they're sort of shared priorities um, or concerns, overwhelming family burden is one of them, imminent threats to life, 
seeking control over current health. Control is a huge issue for both parents and children or adolescents. Prognostic uncertainty and concern for limited opportunities. Lastly, if we look at the top outcomes for parents or caregivers, you can see it's the things that you and I as providers probably care a lot about. Kidney function, survival, infections, anemia, but these are not what the children and young adults and adolescents are really concerned about. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the clinical management dilemmas that I see um, during a transition. So now I'm going to have an interactive part to this. I have some scenarios here. So a 17-year-old, one and a half years post-transplant, creatinine is stable, doing relatively well. Uh, body surface area is 1.7 on triple immunosuppression. I'm pulled to audience and ask, what is the appropriate cell subdose for this patient? How many of you would say a gram twice a day? Okay, 750 twice a day? Okay, a few. Uh, 500 twice a day? A couple more. All right, anyone do more than one gram twice a day? All right, so I'll tell you, pediatric protocol, 650 milligrams meter squared per day. The IQ 12 comes out to about 1150, rounded a little bit. Probably treat with 750, 500. But for some adult practitioners, when they transition, it's not totally clear what you do with this patient. Had this patient been transplanted as adult, perhaps they would have started with a different dose. The young adult population is really one of the most understudied populations, right? Pediatricians study children, adult researchers study older adults, but the 18 to 30 year old transition period is one where there's really no great evidence and it's not entirely clear what you should be doing with your cell step dosing. Of course, there's multiple risk factors to consider, but based on protocol, the protocols don't necessarily always align. I'm gonna take another quick example over here. I'm gonna ask 21 year old comes to your clinic, kidney transplant patient, been transplanted three years, LDL fasting is 150. How many of you have started statin? It's been 150 for six months. You've tried, you know, diet, exercise, low-fat diet, et cetera. How many of you have started statin? Okay, good proportion of you. How many of you would just dietary counseling? Okay, and so how many of you would not check an LDL? <laughs> so you avoid a problem. <laughs> if you don't know, it can't be a problem. Um, so it's not entirely clear, right? So Kate Eagle guidelines, care of kidney transplant recipient, pretty outdated, um, was last released in 2009. Says that if you're an adult, LDL is over 100. You treat to reduce the LDL to less than 100. Um, lipid guidelines released by Kate Eagle, 2013, were updated. Now kidney transplant recipients, everyone gets a statin. Says if you're a child less than 18 years of age, they suggest a stat, um, that statins or statin combinations actually not be initiated. Look at pediatric guidelines. Pediatric guidelines on lipid management is very complicated. So first you have to look at whether or not you're a special risk condition or a high risk condition, of which I would point out to you that post-renal transplant is a high risk condition. Once you figure out that you have a high-risk condition, then there are all these algorithms as to whether or not you treat with a statin. So first you would repeat, you would do what's called a child's two diet, which is a low-fat diet, and try to do dietary modification. And then if persistently over 190, you would initiate a statin, 
160 to 190, you look for at least one high-level risk factor, which this hypothetical patient I gave you would have, or two moderate-level risk factors, you would start a statin. 130 to 160, you need two high-level risk factors, which we don't have in kidney transplantation. Or you have one high-level plus two moderate risk factors, you initiate a statin. But the point being that I'm not sure that a patient is really that different between the age of 17 and 18. And what to do with these patients often is not clear. I'm not sure that we know what statin therapy for the next 40 years between 18 and you know, 55 or 60 really means for that patient. Next, certainly there are conditions that are specific to pediatric renal disease that may be a lot less familiar to adult providers that may actually make these patients more challenging to manage. Then we'll leave a little bit of evidence and talk about some of the cultural challenges in approach to management of the young adult patient. And I think there's a lot of cultural differences in how pediatricians and adult providers actually approach patients. Right, missed clinic appointments. My adult clinic might call once to try to reschedule. They might call twice, but if they don't reschedule, it's up to the patient to reschedule. Pediatric providers will often call to call the parent to try to find a kid, make sure they're actually scheduled for follow-up. So you can see easily why the losses of follow-up are much higher in the um, young adult population. Insurance difficulties, oftentimes these young adults are not actually able to navigate through their insurance challenges. And yet, um, as an adult patient, they may not have access to the same social worker and transplant team that they had as pediatric patients. In addition, time allocated per follow-up, my adult clinic, I have a transition clinic, so I have 45 minutes per patient, but that doesn't always happen. So in regular adult clinic, we have 15 to 20 minutes per patient. That's really only sufficient time to deal with the medical issues that are uh, most urgent to manage. There isn't sufficient time to ask the young adult whether or not they're necessarily always adherent to their medications, what their challenges are, what their insurance status is, all these things that you need to do in order to maintain good follow-up. Medication adherence, adults are self-responsible for medication adherence. Um, again, the beauty of children, especially younger children, is that the parents can often oversee adherence and ensure that medications are taken. I'm going to ask you, when you see your young adult patient come with a parent and you ask them how they're feeling, what is the most common response that you get? Fine. Yeah, I get fine. Or I get, how are you feeling, Johnny? And Johnny looks at mom. And then mom says, tell them how you're feeling. <laughs> then Johnny says, how am I feeling? <laughs> Um, this is a very common scenario. I think oftentimes, you know, we depend on parents as pediatricians to really report people's symptoms. But that doesn't really allow the adolescent and young adult to have the opportunity to really take control of their own care. And surely mom does not know better than the patient as to how they're actually feeling. But oftentimes during that transition, the young adult really isn't capable of voicing difficulties, concerns, things that they really should bring up during an office visit. And so that transition period becomes especially high risk. And then lastly, I would point out to you that comorbidity management is very different and expectations are very different in the pediatric world versus the adult world, right? Adults, you have type 2 diabetes, your primary care can manage. You have hypertension, your primary care can manage. In a pediatric world, most of the time when you have these conditions, you're referred to subspecialists. So oftentimes, my young adults won't go to their primary care because they don't think that the primary care can actually manage their condition. 
It's a very different sort of expectation in terms of who's going to manage. And they end up coming to me and telling me that I have to manage your type 2 diabetes, and I'm the worst person to manage your type 2 diabetes, right? Because that is no longer something that I focus on. There are a lot of new medications that are out there that could be used. All right. Now I'm going to pull the audience again. So you have a 21-year-old scheduled in your clinic. They have failed three successive clinic visits that were rescheduled for them. What is the best way to reach this young adult? How many of you are going to call? Oh, nobody's going to call. Really? Very good. What about email slash my chart? Okay, a good proportion of you. What about text message? Really, you're all going to use your personal cell phones to text message the young adult? Um, so yes, the best way to connect to them is actually text message. That has been our experience. Um, but it's especially challenging because then they end up text messaging me back, hey, I got braces, you want to see? <laughs> no, no, not at midnight. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow morning. <laughs> Um, but it is the best way to actually connect with them. And so for young adults, when they don't show up, um, using technology and leveraging it can actually really improve outcomes. Um, and to close, I'm going to show you this one trial, which I think is actually quite impressive. This is the Take It trial. The Take It trial was initiated across eight centers in Canada and the United States where they had an adherence intervention to try to get young adults with kidney transplants to actually take their medications. So everyone got pillbox monitoring, meaning that uh, you could electronically tell when the pillbox was actually open and you access your medications. You can't actually tell that they swallowed the medication, but at least they opened it um, in the hopes that they swallowed it afterwards and it's not in the toilet or something. The intervention arm actually got um, very intensive coaching. They got text messages. They got emails if that was their preference. They got visual cues that they needed. They got all these coach and support um, for about a period of nine months. The control arm didn't get much. They got the pillbox monitoring, and that was it. And here I'll show you on the y-axis proportion of patients with 100% taking adherence. And taking adherence refers to they think that they took the medication. There was also an outcome where they were looking at timing adherence, where they were looking at whether or not the medication was taken at the correct time, because they know what time the pillbox is actually opened. The black dots over here represent the control arm, and the red dots represent the intervention arm. And you can see that the odds of actually um, adhering to medications was uh, statistically significantly higher in those who had gotten to intensive coaching plus electronic support, text message support, et cetera, compared to those who did not. So in conclusion, young adults are really not the same as your older adults. Every individual really does mature at a different rate. This is a very high-risk population. Formal transition process that is tailored to the priorities of the young adult is strongly recommended, and I think that's where you'll have your most success. I think attempting to normalize life is really important. This is what the young adults want. They don't want to be in your clinic every month. They want to leave a normal life, have a job, have a family, et cetera. And you may want to delay transfer of care. It's not really the chronological age. Um, sometimes the 30-year-olds are still acting like 18-year-olds. That's okay. We're maturing at a slow rate. And thank you for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions. So in late adolescence, how do you deal with the issue of contraception? Especially you brought up the case uh, about cell sept. Yes. 
Is there an issue of concern in girls who are sexually active? Yes, it's absolutely an issue of concern, and it should be a um, significant priority. In our transition clinic, we work jointly with the adolescent group, but our priority is to get an IUD in, and I have actually thought that maybe I should learn how to do it so I can make sure it's in. Um, but, um, you know, in general, that's what we recommend because oftentimes they'll tell you they're not sexually active, but they really are. Um, and unintended pregnancies are one of the things that we really want to prevent. We always struggle with who's, especially an adult, you can be a lot harsher on are they socially balanced, are they ready to go, the older they are, they can hang out. Kids get this big advantage to get transplanted early and for multiple reasons, then things fail socially, financially. But what, it's hard to say validated criteria, but when we're trying to screen in a kid or a immature adult, has anything predicted the real outcome? We always... We fear certain people won't do it. And then there are others who were horrible on dialysis and miraculously become the best <laughs> outcome on transplant. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think prediction of outcomes in this group is really tough because there are multiple factors that are going on. Sometimes social situations change. The most compliant patient can become the worst nightmare um, very quickly. Um, and so I'm not sure that the literature is supportive of you know, this has to be bent in order for, the, for there to be, you know, better outcomes. I think for our clinic, we really do individualized assessments. We have found that a one-size-fit-all program does not actually work. Um, and so we require them to be able to answer either their MyTAR messages, text messages, emails when we send one, and confirm that they've made medication changes. We require that they know what their baseline creatinine is and what their PROVAF targets are, and they read their own labs and read it back to us. Prior to transplantation. Yeah, prior to transplantation is even tougher. Um, you know, again, I think you want to make sure that they've demonstrated adherence. Um, and that has been shown to be somewhat predictive. But again, things actually change over time. Um, but I don't know in the literature that any study has shown, you know, if this criteria is met, you'll do fine at post-transplant. It's just a very high-risk period. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.